Anytime we have a chapel team that's ready to lead us in worship for the first time, I'm always tempted to play a trick on them and walk in when we're praying and say, I just feel the Lord's leading us a different direction. I want you to do three completely different songs uh, than what you've planned on doing, but uh, I guess that's not funny, obviously, but I thought it was funny. I want to thank you for all those who made donations. I also want to thank Wallison Church, Bethel Church, South Weymouth Church of the Nazarene, and others who've made donations for our delivery this afternoon to New York. And again, if you can help bring those items that are in the foyer and in our office to the truck right behind the church here, I'd appreciate it. How many of you love having uh, Professor LaFountain here in the ANC community? A graduate of ENC, Dr. Philip LaFountain, has been serving here since 1997 as professor in the Adult Studies Program and assistant professor of theology in the undergraduate department. A man of many talents and interests, he served as senior pastor to Emmanuel Church of the Nazarene in Pawtucket, Rhode Island for 11 years, as a hospital chaplain, a prison chaplain, and even as the chaplain for a donut company. It's amazing. That's wonderful. In 2010, Dr. LaFountain received his Ph.D. in theology from Boston University after defending his dissertation entitled Narratives of Holiness Identity, the Sanctified Person in the Church of the Nazarene. In his spare time, Dr. LaFountain loves to ride his motorcycle and is working on getting his private pilot's license. So naturally, Dr. LaFountain may not be with us much longer. <laughs> Motorcycles and airplanes. <laughs> so... <laughs> so. <laughs> Dr. LaFountain is husband to his wife of 26 years, Redora, who, who he describes as the holiest person he knows, and father to three children, Philip Jr., Timothy, and Heather, as well as grandfather to 18-month-old 18th month, 18 month Isabel. Will you please give a warm welcome to Dr. Philip LaFountain. Is that out there? Sorry about that. Wow. All right. It is good to be with you. I love being with my family, the church. I love it. Well, um, before we get started, there has just been a crescendo crying out to see my panda monk. So, I have a screenshot of this. There he is. But I'm in agony. I'm agonizing. He's only level 12. Now I've got... I've got, I can't even read that. I've got Gro, Groglet, who's level 85, Grogan 85, Grogan 85, Grogandon 85, and he's level 12. I can't stand it. But I want you to know that I took doctoral classes and I wrote a dissertation, right, while I was playing. So do not come to my class late. Or hand in your work late and say, hey, prof, I was just leveling my tune, you know. It's not going to work. Okay? So during the prayer, that wonderful prayer, I, uh, the, the person praying talked about how this might be a memorable kind of message. And, well, I would hope that would be the case. I'm hoping so. I'm going to use some sort of props to help us do that. As I get older, my memory is fading. So uh, uh, Sydney and Jacob, you're going to come up here, please. Would you bring this very heavy, heavy weight right up here? So I'm hoping today to be able to use... Uh, just hang on to it for a bit. It's all right. You can do that, right, guys? All right, just going to get situated here. Sorry, folks, I'm just going to move this right here. Get situated. You guys okay? It's good. It's 125 pounds right there. And uh, so I'm going to use a newspaper today, a calculator, 
and this set of weights and a red-lettered, red-covered, red-letter edition of the King James Bible. Thanks, folks. Thanks, guys. You can set that right there. Why don't we nix the monk? Great. May I ask you a question today? We're together, right? We're family. If God were to make you a promise, would you believe him? If in these next few minutes that we're together, you were to realize that God has made you a promise, would you trust him? We love promises. At least we think we like promises. They engender expectation, something good, even something wonderful. And in the scriptures, of course, God makes promises to us. But I'm wondering today, what kind of promise would God make? What kind of promise would God be concerned about? What kind of promise would he make us today? And the text I want us to focus on for a few moments is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We want to set a little context before we look at some of those uh, verses. Peter writes to a Christian community or Christian communities that have at least one thing in common with us. While diverse, they shared a common faith. Peter writes these words, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter writes to fellow believers. He wants them to know that they are equal in the kingdom with him because we have faith in Jesus Christ. He writes to them on equal standing because all of us enter into the journey of faith. All of us come in exactly the same way. Through loving trust, In Jesus Christ, we pursue and follow the great God who created all things. But we too have a similarity. We also are a diverse community. We come from different geographical areas, varying ethnic and racial backgrounds, and even different religious traditions. But like Peter's communities, we too have at least one thing in common. We agree with Peter that we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We all stand at the threshold of the Word of God equally by faith. But for Peter, it doesn't end with faith. It begins with faith, but it does not end with faith. Or rather, let's see what he has to say. Peter prays for them, and he prays that they might grow Uh, may, uh, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. For Peter, the way that we make a way in the kingdom of God and grow as Christians is to grow in the knowledge of God. That's not just intellectual for him, as we will see. It's not a matter of cognitive knowledge, right? It's that too, but it's this experiential entering in to a way of life. And then in the text, Peter poises uh, here. He, he sets this text, these promises, in this context. He sets the stage for the divine promises. And he pens these words, more astounding and extraordinary 
certainly than our modern ears can endure, so astounding that when we read them, we shrink back. Or sometimes we simply gloss over them, acting as if we never saw them. He writes this, His, or God's divine power, has granted to us everything we need. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. When God calls us into the kingdom, he calls us to himself. He calls us to enter in to his glory. He calls us to enter into his excellence. You see, God is not excellent. He is excellence. God is not glorious. He is glory. Now, I know the Bible uses both of those other terms, but I want to get at the very nature of God. For you and I have heard the call to enter into a relationship. You and I maybe have responded to that call. And that call is only to this, to enter in to God's very nature, to enter into his glory, to enter into his excellence. And that, that is the wonderful context for the promises. But wait a minute. God has given to us all things, everything we need. Surely this is an exaggeration. Surely this is poetic license, right? Surely Peter overstates the matter here. Does he not know the world that we live in? Does he not know our troubles, my life, the problems you and I face? But I wonder about this. If in light of God's glory and excellence, out of that he were to make a promise to you and to me, what kind of promise would God make? What kind of promise would God make? And now Peter moves to those promises. He wants to rush us to those promises. And he writes these words. God's glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Folks, when I read those words, I begin to drool. I love it. I love it, right? His precious and very great promises that through these, well, what are these? Through these what? Through his glory and excellence emerging into promise that by those promises, we are able to escape from the corruption that's in the world because of passion. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? That we can escape the corruption that's in the world because of passion. What is Peter doing? What is he trying to say to us? I mean, it sounds so old-fashioned, so out of date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sin, corruption, passion. So he invites us to look at the daily paper. I've got the New York Times, but it could be any other paper. So when Peter looks at the Jerusalem Times or the Roman Times, right? He's teaching us how 
to read the world. He's teaching us. We have to learn how to read the world as God reads the world. He's teaching us to take our daily paper and look at the details, the events, right? The celebrations and the joys and the sorrows, but to read them through the eyes of God. And there he sees a world that's shaped more by human passion than a passion for God. I don't know about you, but Peter teaches me to read my own life. You know, my own life is a text. My own life is a story. He teaches me to read myself. And as I read these verses, and as I read this passage, I read myself into that. See, there was a time when Phil LaFountain was not a Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. You see, our family, we were nominally Catholic. You know what that means? That means when the Baptist minister comes to the door to evangelize, my father opened the door and said, sorry, we're Catholic, and closed the door, right? But we never darkened the door of a Catholic church. We never went, you know? And I, I try to understand my dad. My dad, my, the, 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 the song of faith or the tune of faith did not ring true to my father's ear. We never went as a family, and I try to understand that even now, my dad passed last August. And all my adult life, I've tried to understand my father. And I, maybe a little bit of his own life, telling that story might help you, as I try to help myself understand. You see, my dad was invited to leave home by my grad, grandfather at age 12. We lived in an agricultural community. My grandfather was probably senile by the time I was 10 years old, right? When we would go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, LaFountain's house, he would be outside with us, and if a plane came over, he would get all the grandkids together, and he'd go, he'd point to the sky and says, Commies, coming to get you. He'd scare us to death, you know? We'd run in the house, I'd dive under the couch, you know? I'd hide in the closet, you know? Communists coming to get me, right, you know? I mean, he... Uh, something was wrong with Grandpa, right? You know, and we knew it, right? You know, and uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> they, my Grandma, Grandpa, they had nine children, seven girls and two boys, and my grandfather doted on those girls because they did all kinds of stuff for him, right? They cared for him and pampered him, and oh, you know, Dad, Dad you know, they did all these things. But for the boys, see, my grandfather was a hard man. He. Uh, was a French Canadian, little tiny French Canadian logger, and uh, he was missing some fingers. He missed a thumb on one hand. I think this finger was missing on his right hand. He's missing the, 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 this pointer finger, you know, and I think it was a pinky, you know. Because in the logging camps, when you're pushing logs through, your finger might get caught in there, right, you know? And he'd, be, he'd have this grinding wheel, and he'd make a living grinding tools for people, right, you know? That's a, that's a hard life. The first five children, my aunts and uncles, right? They were born in the logging camps, right? In the tents. That's a hard life. And my grandfather was a hard man. So they turn, you know, the, the ripe old age of 12. He opens the door and says, get out. You're on your own. 12 years old. What is my father to do? 
He had to make a way for himself. He had to pull himself up by his bootstraps, right? You know, he had to make a way. No one helped him. He traveled around the farms in upstate New York, sleeping in the barns, sleeping on people's porches, sleeping in the lofts, working during the day, right? Baling hay and, and planting seed and all that. But he had to make a way for himself. And my dad saw himself as this self-made man, right? You know, I don't need anybody. I don't need religion, that's for sure. I came home one day, and I said, Dad, I'm a Christian. And he laughed, you know. I never understood that until I learned about my father as I got older to come to grips. But my grandmother was a beautiful woman. She, beautiful in spirit, she, her aspiration for life was to give her life to God. She wanted to be a nun, but they wouldn't take her because as a child she had polio and her leg was deformed. She would often drag that leg around like this because she couldn't lift it up. She'd do this and she'd make jams for us and dinner, you know. She'd kind of pull that leg around. And my grandfather was a brutal man. As he got older, he would sit by this little stove and it would be so hot. Like in the middle of summer, it'd be like 110 degrees from the stove. And the smoke from the stove would have burned the ceiling. It was dark and he'd he'd huddle there because he feels so cold, you know. But he used to beat my grandmother. And I see her now trying to drag her foot away from Grandpa as he comes to at her with whatever he could find to beat her into submission. My dad grew up in that kind of home. But my grandmother, and my dad said this so many times, that his mother was a saint. In her broken Canadian French, she would say to me, Philippe, you stay tonight? We go to God's house tomorrow? I was like six or seven years old, you know, and I'd stay at her house. She'd take care of me. We'd get, up, we'd get up in the morning, Sunday morning, take the bus to Saratoga and go to St. Michael's. And there, it was the old Latin rite, right? Everything was in Latin. I didn't understand. Oh, but I understood. Grandma would show me in her deformed body. She would kneel there at just the right time, and she'd help me kneel. Then she showed me how to fold my hands in just the right way and how to honor God. I didn't understand a word, but I understood everything. Because in my grandma, I saw an honor for God that stays with me even today. She was a saint who taught me how to honor God. But her faith did not become my faith. At least not at that age. I did. I took catechism, uh, made a confirmation, first communion. I was an altar boy for three years, you know. But that didn't become mine. It didn't take root. It, 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 I didn't own it in that way. Then at age 17, I went to the Baptist church. I was riding home on the evening sports bus. And a guy in front of me, his name's Roger, he turned to me and said, hey, Phil, you know, you play soccer and he plays football. We chide each other, you know, and you play football, I play soccer, that kind of thing. You know, we'd make fun of each other. It was, it, was, it was great. We had a great friendship. And I found out he was a, a son of a Baptist minister. And uh, he invited me to youth group. And I'd go to, the ser- I'd go to the service. Now, it was the early 70s, so I've got hair down to my shoulders, right, you know. You know, those big flowery shirts that they wore in the hippie days, right? You know, I had bell bottoms. Come on, Ronan, come on. You know what I'm talking about. 
don't, don't look that way to me, right, you know, come on, right, you know, the bell-bottom jeans and stuff, you know, and I'm sitting back in the sinner's row in the church, right, you know, where the other teens are, right, you know, and this little old lady, it was the end of the service, and they were playing just as I am, the 14th verse, and I saw her, I saw her get up out of her pew, just like this. And the pastor must have known because he played verse 15. You know, he gets up, she gets up like this. And, you know, little old ladies, they go really slow, you know. And we're all watching her, right, you know. And she's going all the way back. And I go, oh, no, Lord, not me. Please don't have her come to me, right, you know. She comes all the way back to me, right, right here. I'm going to pick on you. I'll pick, I'll pick on you. She comes and she says, Philip. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, my mama taught me never to disobey your elderly folk, right, you know? So what was I going to say? I said, okay. She took me by the hand, all right? Come on, come on. <laughs> Embarrassing, isn't it? Now you know how I felt, right, you know? She goes all the way just like this, you know? Come on, you're walking too fast. Don't push me. Don't push me, man, right, you know? All the way, right? So we're going to speed up a little bit. You like that part, don't you? No. She had me kneel at the altar. Kneel at the altar. Now, Philip, I want you to pray after me. Right, you know? And she had me pray the sinner's prayer. And you can stand up now. And the church gave me a round of applause. Like, you're going to give him a round of applause, right, you know? It's like, wow. And I'm going... And I'm thinking... What happened? You know, like, what did I do, right? The church is happy. That's a good thing, right, you know? And I wondered about that. But still, even though I learned how to repent, you see, the church has to teach us these things. I had to learn from my grandmother how to honor God. And I had to learn from that wonderful old lady, how to repent. Otherwise, I wouldn't know. Folks, that's the task of the church, to teach us these things. How do we read our lives through the eyes of God? The role of the church is to teach us how to see ourselves, the world, and each other. Yes, I believe that. And then... They gave me a red-covered, red-letter edition of the King James Bible. I put it away, didn't read it. But I remember going into the Air Force. My parents had eight kids, and we had one bedroom for four boys and one bedroom for four girls. It was kind of crowded, right, you know? I couldn't wait to get away, you know? So at 17, I wanted to quit high school. Right? It was January, and I said to my mom and dad, I'm leaving school, and I'm going to get a job. My dad was fine with my dad. He didn't care. Right? You know, it was good for him. He wanted me to work in the mill. Right? You know, he was a mill rat all his life. Right? You know, worked in the paper mill you know, on the Hudson River. It was fine for him. It made a good living. You know, provided for a family with eight kids. But my mom said, no. You've got to finish high school. So she negotiated with me, right? We made an agreement that I could enlist early in the Air Force in February, go in in July, 
but I would finish school and graduate in June. And I did that, and I remember going into the Air Force, and I remember packing that red-covered, red-letter edition of the King James Bible. And there it stayed, at the bottom of my duffel bag, with all my other street clothes. But while I was in the military, I got stationed. Is anybody from Texas here? Good, I can say bad things about Texas then. Great. Because I got stationed in Wichita Falls, Texas. That's the armpit of Texas. Right? If you think about a body part, right, you know, that's the armpit of Texas, right? Rattlesnake and tumbleweed. I'll tell you about the rattlesnake hunt we, I went on some other day. And I learned how to parachute there in Texas at this base, right, you know. I can't go into that right now, but take me out to lunch and I'll tell you those stories. But while I was there, I entered into a crisis. I mean, I plummeted and I plummeted deep. I was lonely. I was lost. I wasn't sure about my own life, what it meant. And I, I, I didn't like the way I, 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 I acted in way like the way I lived. And when I got to Wichita Falls, that was my first duty station, I got trained in the Air Force as a TV equipment repairman. Oh, yes, right? Like the Maytag repairman. Although we had more to do than he had. So it was a setup, electronics, a setting up a complete TV color studio. It was wonderful. Cameras, video machines, sound machines. You know, I got to set up everything. You know, the tech school was great. And I was looking forward to this wonderful, exciting, very satisfying career for myself, right? You know, in the Air Force doing this, I, was kind of, I, was, I liked it. But the Air Force, in their wisdom, spent thousands of dollars, right, on training me. I get to Wichita Falls, and they say, guess what, Phil? You're out of a job. We're going civilian contract. You have literally now nothing to do. Now, that sounds wonderful. It was great for like two weeks, right? But after that, going to the shop every day, doing nothing and going home, going to the shop, doing nothing and going home, going to the shop and doing nothing and going home. Folks, it was deadly. We did have 12 TVs on base. There were six Sony and six RCA. I can see them in my imagination right now. And what we do are these preventative maintenance slips, right, you know? Now, we had 12 guys in the shop, right? From staff sergeant, tech sergeant, all the way down to lowly airman. I think I was a, just below sergeant at the time, right, you know? We literally fought each other to get those slips anything, right? So you get out of your shop, you go to someplace on base, and all you do is you turn the TV on, make sure it works, and you shut it off. But those few minutes to getting out of that shop, that deadly shop, right, we would literally fight each other. I mean, there were fist fights, fisticuffs, right, you know? Give me that slip. No, I want it, right, you know? And I, I'm, not a, I'm ashamed to say this, but at that time, I was insubordinate. I failed to obey a command of a sergeant above me, and I was disciplined for that. And that was the lowest, lowest, lowest point in my life. And I remember after that, wandering around, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I remember what the church taught me. 
I wanted to get close to God. I wanted to connect with God. So I remember going to my dorm room. Um, and I got my green duffel bag. And way at the bottom, I mean way at the bottom, was my red-covered, red-letter edition of the King James Bible. And I did what the church taught me. I took that book, and I laid it on my dorm room floor. And I just began crying out to God, Help me. Help me, God. And I began reading that text different. I don't even remember what I read. But that night, God and I found each other. I know I was searching for God. And I discovered that night that God was searching for me. And we found each other. And I fell asleep, exhausted on that dorm room floor. But I'll tell you, folks, the Lord is my witness. I awoke that next morning, and I was a new creation. I was a new man. I had found the most important thing in my life. And folks, I have lived out of the spillover of that experience for 32 years and would not give up one second for anything. For Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But folks, while I was converted that night, it was me and God, one bare heart, crying out to God, help! But the church was all around me. My grandmother was there. The lady of the Baptist church was there with me. You never do anything alone. It's always the church. It's always there. Even though physically I was alone, none of that would have happened. Nothing would have happened if it were not for what I learned from my wonderful, saintly grandmother. And that lady who knelt me there at the altar and had me say the sinner's prayer. I was immersed in the flesh. Oh yeah. We've got to confess it, right? You've got to be honest with yourself and God. I lived out Phil's passion for Phil. I know I had a passion for Phil, right? But God exchanged that passion for Phil for a passion for God and for Jesus, his son. The first promise, part of that promise, is that we can escape the corruption in the world that's there because of passion. But the second part of that verse, that section, reads like this. Would you go back to the other one, please? Number four. Thanks. And become partakers of the divine nature. Folks, I don't know if you caught that, but there are two promises there. God has promised to us that we can escape the corruption in the world because of passion, and we can become like him. In fact, in fact, if you look carefully at the text, you read it slowly, right, weighing every word, you will see that the way that we escape the corruption in the world 
is by becoming like God. I find that very interesting. When God makes a promise, you better be sure it's a good one. And when God makes a promise, you better be ready to participate in his divine nature. We escape the corruption in the world due to passion by becoming like God. I don't know about you folks, but I'm ready to leap for joy over that. That's good news to this lost guy, right, you know, who was once lost. I'll go for that. So God makes these promises. So we've got these two promises that are intricately related, right? One brings about the other. Become like God. We can escape the corruption of the world. I'm going to go that way, folks, right, you know? Can I say something? I, I wasn't going to say this. I wasn't, but I got to. Because I won't, I won't be able to live with myself. Oh, I could do that, I guess. Huh? <laughs> Sometimes I say to folks, Christians, hey, guess what? You can be holy. They go, yeah, I know. But when I say, hey, you're forgiven. Yeah, we're forgiven. Wow. They like that part. But then I say, but you can also be holy. Yeah, I know. I don't know. What's going on with that, you know? I don't know. I'm still trying to work that through, right? Next slide, please. Thanks. So, for this reason. For what reason? Because God has just made us two interrelated, wonderful promises that we can escape the corruption of the world by becoming like God. Therefore, then he writes, what's the application? If God promises you something, how are you going to respond, right? If God makes these great, he he considers them great and precious promises, right? How are you going to respond? How am I going to respond to this? He, Peter writes, make every effort to add to your faith. Whoa, 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 whoa. Peter, you just wait a minute. What do you mean, add to your faith? Peter, what are you saying? Don't you know, Peter, I'm a good Protestant? Hey, Peter, haven't you heard? There's been a Protestant Reformation, right? And the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation is sola fide, sola fide, by faith alone, by faith alone, right? Peter, I'm a good evangelical. Come on. Maybe Peter isn't a good Protestant. Maybe Peter's not a good evangelical. Maybe Peter is just trying to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe we can learn something from Peter today. Make every effort to add to your faith. Next slide, please. But then Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith. You begin with faith. Make every effort to add to your faith. He's giving me the two-minute sign, right? Well, I need a couple guys here. Jacob, we're going to pick on Corey. We're going to pick on Sydney. Come on up here again, please. Corey, come on up. I know you're leaving here. You need a little exercise for driving, right? You know? All right. Guys, you're the spotters. Okay, Corey, go ahead and pick that up if you would, please. <laughs> Spotters. Now, I know, I know. It's, it's, wait, 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 wait. I have to warn you here. Oh, it is 25 and 20. It's 45 pounds, okay? okay? So I want you to be careful, okay? All right. All right, guys, you're going to be spotters, right? Okay, you're going to pick that up. You know, Dr. Corey, pick it up. Yep. Both hands, please. Both hands, okay? Kind of lift it up like you're weightlifting, okay? Yep, there we go. Oh, oh. 
No, be careful. Oh. Guys, you should have been there, guys. Okay, hold it up for him. You're going to lift it up like you're lifting it. Come on, you're going to oh, put okay. it up. Right about right there, okay? Right. I remember going to the gym one time. Now, I know I don't have to say anything. It's obvious. You know I'm a weightlifter. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I, I, I pump the iron, right? You know, I pump the iron. I do, it, I do it to keep the spark in my marriage, right, you know? Because when I go to the gym, right, I come on now, you know? I gotta, you know? Yeah. My wife is putty in my hands when I come back from the gym. Woo! I'll tell you what, you know? Wow, it's great. So, but many years ago, long before I got this physique, okay? I mean, you, you look, folks, you don't get to look like this being a couch potato, okay? Come on. Word to the wise here, right? Okay. So I was going to, I was at the gym and I saw this guy lifting weights, right? You know? And he was up like this. He had a couple of buddies, you know, spotting him. And he was pressing it up, you know? And of course, the weights he had, Corey, were like this, right? You know, it was like, it's like a thousand pounds, right? You know? It was, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy stuff. And he was pushing up, push a little higher. A little higher. Right, 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 no, no, too high. Right, right there, right there. And, right, and he got to that point and he stopped. He froze, right? He's pushing, pushing his buddies to go, come on, come on, guys, encourage him. Come on, push, 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 right, you know? But he couldn't go further, and his face began turning red. You know, and the veins were popping out, right, you know? And he was sweating, and I was getting worried about him, right, you know? But as he's pushing, pushing, I saw on his face, in different spots, little drops of blood. The corpuscles just under the layers of skin were popping, and it was oozing out of the skin. And this guy, to my mind, was literally sweating blood. Right, you know? Oh, you put, you, you acting? No, you, no, no. He was like sweating blood. I couldn't believe it. Okay, you guys put that down. Yeah, thanks. Be careful, be careful. Yep. So, I want to leave you with this image. It's all we got time for. I had a whole another hour prepared. <laughs> um, but, because I, I, didn't, I didn't even get to the calculator. Uh, add to our faith. Um, folks, how would you live into the promises of God? Peter says to make every effort to add to your faith. I want to say it this way. Sweat blood to add to your faith. Sweat blood to add to your faith. Really quickly, faith, add virtue, add knowledge, add self-control, add, add steadfastness. Next, add godliness, add brotherly kindness, add agape. But folks, we begin with faith, but we must sweat blood to become the kind of people that God dreams about. Amen? Let's stand together, please. Have our benediction. Father God, wow, wow, wow. Your word is profound. Your promises are extraordinary. They shock us a little bit. Because in this life, it's hard to imagine our way into those promises, Father. But you have given us a way. And we go from this place. Lord, the only question that emerges out of this for us, the one that impinges on this is this. Are we going to sweat blood to add to our faith to become like you? Lord, let it be so. Empower us by your spirit. 
bless these good folks today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat>